0: Welcome to Loud and Clear, a podcast dedicated to amplifying the voices of women in music. I'm your host, Olivia Adams, and I'm excited to talk to our guest today. Karen Garelis is a doctoral candidate at the University of Calgary, researching musical identity and motivation with piano students. She holds degrees from the University of Saskatchewan, the University of Ottawa, the Royal Conservatory of Music, and Trinity College London. Her research has been featured across North America at conferences in print and on podcasts. She is a third-generation piano teacher with an active private studio where she teaches piano, pedagogy, music history, and theory. Welcome, Karen. It's so good to have you here today.
1: Thank you so much. I'm excited to be uh, back on podcasting. This is such a great way to uh, get my work out there for uh, everybody to listen to. So thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. My pleasure. So, Karen, can you tell us a bit more about yourself and what led you down the path of being a pianist and, and a piano researcher now?
1: Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. So I think it's interesting you use the word pianist because that's actually not a word I use to describe myself. And since I am so interested in the topic of identity and the language we use when we talk about ourselves, I think that's uh, I feel very honored you call me a pianist because I don't call myself that. (laughs) Maybe I should. Um, And this leads me to a story of kind of how I got here. Uh, I was in a doctoral seminar about five years ago. And we were talking about the question of what did it mean to be a musician? And the striking moment was that everyone in that room, except myself, thought I was a musician. And they all looked at me and they thought, well, Karen, if you're not a musician, then who the heck is? So that's what led me to my research question, but uh, prior to that, some background, you mentioned that I'm a third generation piano teacher. Yes, my mom has her ARCT from the Royal Conservatory in uh, piano pedagogy, and my grandma had her mom, uh, my grandma had her ARCT as well in vocal performance. So as far as they know, we're the first family to have done this consecutively, and uh, that was just, I don't know, maybe it was just part of my destiny. That I'm not quite sure when my piano lessons started as a small child, but I remember my Favorite song when I was three. It wasn't Wheels on the Bus or Row the Boat. It was uh, the theme from Cats.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a fantastic story to start with. (laughs) Yeah. So
1: I went on and I did my BA in a totally unrelated field, to be honest. And I tried to escape the pull of music. But you know, as a musician, we can't escape it. We are meant to do what we do. And so that led me to an MA at the University of Ottawa, where I got quite. absorbed with research. And that's really my calling is music education research. And once I was done that, I had more questions than when I started with. So naturally I had to go on and do a PhD and answer a bunch of my own questions. And so that's where I am now. I'm just about finished my PhD at the University of Calgary uh, in the Department of Education actually, but working with piano students in a music education capacity. So that's, that's a bit of me.
0: That's excellent. And Karen and I share uh, an alma mater both did our master's at the University of Ottawa and I am with you in that the reason why I'm doing a PhD is because I found more questions that I want to answer and it's funny how that how that starts <laughs> so how has your experience as a pianist a piano teacher shaped your research because the the piano teacher came first right and then that was where you found some questions that you wanted to to research am I correct
1: Oh, it's all just mixed up. I was teaching, I'm researching, I'm studying, I'm reading all at the same time. And so where I am now in particular came out of my master's research where my MA looked at dropout students. I was curious to know what are the reasons that so many students leave piano lessons, because it seems like There are more that leave than continue. So that's a problem. We should understand more about this. And one of the things that came up with that research is that the dropout students had really no long-term vision of themselves as being musicians, being pianists, being musical in any kind of way. They anticipated that music lessons would stop shortly after they started. So they had really no trajectory about how this was going to matter to them in the near or far future, what this meant for their lives going forward. And so as I was doing some reading, a study by Evans and McPherson, I think 2015 out of Australia, really brought this home. And this was the striking moment that reading their work, Gary McPherson had done an enormous longitudinal study now probably 10 or 15 years ago with Australian band and instrumental students. And many of them left classroom music, and so they initially analyzed that as a lack of commitment. Well, when Evans Paul Evans joined Gary McPherson and they reanalyzed that data about 10 years later, they thought, wait a second, maybe this is something deeper than commitment. Maybe this is a real lack of identity, identity as a musician, that I am a musician, I can't quit part of who I am that this is going to matter for me going forward. This is an important part of my life. And so I can't just give that up so easily. So that's what brought me to the topic of identity where I am now. And uh, I see that a lot with my own students that some of them who leave lessons because uh, I am not the golden teacher who doesn't have students quit. They they still quit. <laughs> um, but I can see it, that they just have no concept of how music is going to matter in their lives going forward. And so I'm trying to teach differently, actually, to change that. I do have a bit of a, a justice to um, to uphold here. Anyway, so that's a little bit about how I got to where I am now and how my experience has shaped my research.
0: To me, you're answering a question that we all were asking as piano teachers as to why Why do students leave? You know, we definitely sometimes see that drop in motivation, but sometimes we'll see really talented students walk away from piano. So I'm, that's where I got interested in your research. I was like, I wanted to see like, why is it that, you know, I stuck with it, (laughs) you know,
1: and I found that if you put 10 teachers in a room and ask them that question, you'll get 10 totally different answers. <laughs> there For are sure. a million reasons why students leave lessons, yes. but could it be like, if you really think about all those reasons more deeply, could this lack of identity be one of the root causes?
0: Hmm. So interesting, absolutely. So you are one of the premier s- researchers, if I can say that on piano student dropout rates. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us more about what sort of markers and predictors of dropping out that you're seeing in your research?
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I just want to hone in on part of your question here, dropout rates. We don't actually know the dropout rate, so I can't talk. Oh, to OK. That. Yeah. Um, we, first of all, we don't know how many piano students there are. Mm-hmm. We don't know how long they take lessons for. We don't know at which point they leave and we don't know how long the ones who continue actually keep going for so this warrants a longitudinal study please somebody out there who's listening take this up get into research find some funding and please let me know because this is (laughs) uh, this is my career study is that the drop we don't actually know the dropout rate
0: but yeah.
1: From what I do know, what sorts of markers or predictors of dropping out? So we published this, we as in uh, Professor Giacomo at the University of Ottawa and Mr. Michael Swerp, who's in the piano lab there as well, published this in Intersections, which is the Canadian Journal of Music in 2017. Uh, if you want a shortcut, it is open access, you can go find it. But if you want a shortcut, um, if you go to my own website, it's garrulousmusic.com, so g-e-r-e-l-u-s-m-u-s-i-c.com and go into the academics tab there i have all of my publications listed so i have a whole article on some of these predictors but to briefly summarize that article in case you're not into reading academic research (laughs) um it's it falls into a catchy three things um expertise is one of them so the gaining some ability feeling like you're good at this that is so important to keep students going nobody wants to keep going at something they think they suck at is the informal way to say that. So you need some expertise, some momentum behind uh, what they're doing at the piano. Uh, the next one is much bigger, it's environment, setting up the environment for success. We can only do so much in the studio, and you only have so much influence outside the studio. So it's getting the buy in not only of parents, but of shaping, suggesting <laughs> as best you can, how to live a musical life. Mm-hmm. I have good colleague merlin thompson who also has his own fabulous podcast uh is saying he asks parents two things can you be interested and involved and it sounds simple but actually when you think about it that's there's quite a lot to that anyway back to my own thing the environment shaping the environment as best you can to support music study so of course yes this is things like listening to piano music i don't know how you're supposed to play piano music if you've never heard piano music seems fairly obvious when you say it like that. Um, Of course, there there is a practice requirement. You can't enjoy something you never do. So that's part of it. Um, We found distinct markers in my previous research about the students who continued compared to the students who dropped out. In aggregate, over the course of a week, the dropout students were practicing about half the rate of the students who continued. So setting up the environment to allow for sufficient practicing. That also links back to my previous expertise that I was just talking about. They're all kind of, they're all kind of flow together. And then the last one, so we've had expertise environment and then envisioning, envisioning a future musical self. And that's part of more my research now about identity that falls into that stream. So uh, yeah, so predictors of dropping out if you don't really have any expertise, you don't have an environment set up to support anything you're doing and you have no vision of how this is going to matter. That's probably not going to work. Is it?
0: It seems fairly simple when you say it like that, but yes, like all of those factors and how they play a role that makes perfect sense. You had touched on it at the end that your current research is, is dealing with the, the motivation factor and this sense of identity, the larger, identity as a musician. Can you talk about that and the shaping of musical identity in students? Do do teachers play a role in that? Do parents play a role in that? Or is it more, it needs to be intrinsic that the student is, is the controller of that?
1: So going back to my original story about how I didn't even consider myself a musician, you know, into my 30s after having done all these performance diplomas and playing the piano for decades. Well, could it be that nobody had ever referred to me as a musician? So how how was I going to refer to myself as a musician if I didn't have that established? So that is a very basic thing that parents and teachers can do is refer to your students. Use that word. This doesn't have to be some grand lofty word Uh, who is a musician who gets to call themselves a musician. Well, there's actually plenty of research out there that says that toddlers consider themselves musicians. And maybe somewhere along the way that gets crushed, which is very sad Mm. when you think about it. But I really encourage anyone who has an influence on young students to call them musicians as early as possible, because that's how they're going to call themselves musicians. But yes, you're right that it has to be an inner thing, you have to draw that out. And I came to this this was the light bulb moment, the realization somewhere along the way that that is when you are a musician is when you use the word to describe yourself.
0: That makes me so happy as a music teacher because it's almost like I knew, I knew that intrinsically that that you needed to self-identify because I remember having this very influential choir teacher that she would look at all of us in the room and say, all right, artists, Let's pick up our books, you know. All right, musicians, what say you about, you know, this in the score? What do you think? And I was like, this this person wants my opinion, you know, but also being treated like I had something to say. And so I feel like teachers can draw that out of their students as well
1: hmm it's a belief. it's saying that I believe in you, I believe that you are a musical being. I believe that you have musical knowledge. I value your opinion. Um, I know uh, Anita Collins, if you haven't read her book, The Music Advantage, uh, has her first chapter doing a lot with early music and children are born knowing what sounds. they're born with so much knowledge of musical sounds, particularly the mother's voice. and so, you know, onwards and upwards from there, people, I think we all believe that people are naturally musical. And so then referring to them in that way, outwardly shows that belief.
0: You are a mother. And I'm wondering, has your research shaped how you talk to Henry and what activities you do with him?
1: I think he just thinks all the music we have in our house is normal. Like you can see my two grand pianos behind me, there's a harp in the corner, I've got a saxophone in the closet. Uh, His current favorite piece that he requests every time we're in the car is the Haydn trumpet concerto in E flat. And so I don't know any other two-year-old that likes listening to the Haydn trumpet concerto. And I'm not totally sure how we got here, but he just thinks that's so much a normal part of life yes. that um, it's just part of who we are.
0: Yeah. I had a colleague and I was chatting with her and I said, oh, do your kids enjoy the music that you listen to? And she goes, yeah, my three-year-old thinks it's normal to listen to Webern. Oh, so it's just just another, just another day in the home. Yeah, that's right. That's great. Um, So in addition to calling our students musicians and artists, are there other external factors that we as music teachers can help to set up our students' motivation level? I mean, you did touch on environment. That's a really big um, impact. But are there other things that we can do to set our students up for success earlier so that we don't see as many dropouts.
1: So this has to get credited back to researchers, Daisy and Ryan. Mm -hmm. And if you've ever heard me talk about anything, you've probably heard me talk about them. They are very central to all of my work. I've been reading their publications for the last eight years, and they developed self-determination theory. These are psychologists from the University of Rochester. And I think, Olivia, do you use their work in your research as well?
0: I do. Yeah.
1: Yes, so you know a little bit about this, but for those unfamiliar, um, the basic tenets of self-determination theory are that there are three critical psychological needs, competency, autonomy, and relatedness. So competency is the feeling of, I'm good at this. I enjoy this because I have some skill. I have an ability that maybe not everybody has, and that's really something special about me. The next one is autonomy. So I've chosen this for myself. This is something I really, really want to do. And nobody's forcing me to do this. I want to be here because I think it's great. And then the last one is relatedness or relevancy. So this is something that people around me care about. I feel valued, I feel included, I matter to the community to the music community and uh, not only in the studio, but outside. So I often like to take one of those away in my presentations, because I've never seen this done elsewhere. And I think it really uh, makes a strong point. So for example, if you have competency and autonomy, but no relatedness. So I'm really, really good at this and I, I want to be here. I want to take piano lessons and I have some real ability here, but nobody in my life cares that I'm doing this. That's the relatedness that's missing. So that's probably not gonna work. So let's take another one away. Uh, Let's take away autonomy. So I'm competent. I'm good at this. Everybody in my life cares that I'm doing this. I feel valued and included, but I don't want to be here. I am being forced to do this. That's not going to work either. And say the last one we take away competency. So. Yep, I signed myself up for piano lessons. I think this is great. My family supports this. I have a really strong musical community, but I am not good at this at all. <laughs> That's probably not going to work either. So where I'm going with this is that if teachers can support those three psychological needs, you, you build a boat. You can build the boat, but you cannot row it. You can do everything to set up these students for success, but in the end, they're rowing their own boat. Mm -hmm. And there's, you you have done your best. You can build them the best boat in the world by setting up these three psychological needs for success, but it's their choice whether to row it or not. So I heard Edward Dacey say something along the lines of, um, he was giving the keynote address at the Self-Determination Theory Conference. Uh, You can shape the environment, but you can't motivate people.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes, no, absolutely. I really like that idea of, of taking one away and we realize how, how those three depend on each other in order to make us, I mean, successful in any area of life, not just piano lessons. That's great. Um, I'm curious if your research, your current research has touched on this at all because you have done it in part in the pandemic, but do you find that the pandemic and online learning has affected student motivation, even perhaps in your own studio?
1: The biggest one is that uh, relevancy, relatedness, relationships, those sorts of words is that students haven't seen each other. There has been no community. I've tried to do online recitals and practice parties and I have tried my darndest on Zoom, but you need to be in the same room, feeling each other's energy, sharing ideas, finishing one another's sentences. That is so powerful to be back. I had my first recital back in person in June and we were over fire capacity. (laughs) Standing <laughs> room only, which I was quite proud about, but people were just so eager to be back together, making yeah. music together, and so that has been the biggest, biggest change. Is just, well, I, and we all know, keeping one another apart. So, um, yeah, we rely on group events. Um, if if teachers out there don't have group events, I think you're really uh, shortchanging your students, you're really missing something important because they learn so much from one another and these aren't just, you know, yearly or biannual recitals, um, but piano parties, group lessons, whatever you want to call them, uh, studio so picnics, good. I don't know, whatever you can think of to build that community back up, because that is, uh, that, I think that's more powerful than we know That's something that has come out of my current research, are relationships. So I set out to study three particular things and i ended up kind of finding three totally different but really interesting other things. (laughs) And uh, in my opinion, relationships was the strongest because all the students in my own research talked so strongly about the musical relationships in their life. So not only with their parents or teachers, kind of the obvious ones, but about friendships, But what I didn't notice, they didn't talk at all about relationships with peers in their own music studios. That didn't come up once to say uh, another student who goes to the same teacher or another student who studies in my same studio. Not a once. These are students from school who they see regularly, um, friends, neighbors, cousins, uh, that sort of thing. So I think we can do a better job of that at creating stronger music communities, warm, friendly communities with our own, in our own studios. It takes work. It takes time. It's going to take up your Saturday morning, probably, but it's worth it.
0: Absolutely, um, I am with you in that. I did the Zoom recitals and the Zoom group classes and master classes, and the question that kept coming back was, "When are we going to do it in person again?" And so, when we had our first in-person master class, it was like everyone was smiling, and you know, it. And some of them hadn't ever met in person, but it was, it was like they had all been craving being back together in the same room and, and then at music festival, being able to play in person and hear their colleagues and, and just have that in-person experience, which, you know, you can't get from recording on your teacher's piano. Yeah, Yeah,
1: exactly. Yep.
0: So Karen, do you find it challenging to balance the hats of being a pianist, teacher, researcher, or do you find that these things feed into one another? Do you find your teaching feeds your research and your research feeds your teaching and they kind of oscillate back and forth?
1: Yeah, of course. Of course they do. (laughs) uh, This is a lifestyle at this point. This is what I spend my life thinking about are these questions. Uh, So yeah, my experience as Uh, a performing pianist uh, led me to teaching and well they both both sort of came about in the same time in my early 20s and I then I got pulled into research but yeah what I'm playing on the piano uh, like what I'm currently playing helps me be a better teacher. Mm -hmm. Of course, because the more we play, the more insight we have about teaching and the more I teach leads me to new research questions. And then my research questions, I answer them. So I end up being a better teacher and it all is all just cyclical. So, yeah, they uh, sure it's challenging to balance it all because there's uh, a lot happening, but Mm -hmm. they're just they flow so organically from one to the next. The biggest challenge I have (laughs) is parenthood that I would say pulls (laughs) me away from some of these things because there's only so many hours in a day you know but um yeah yeah it's been it's been a wonderful life calling i'm i'm so happy to be where i am
0: that's so great and i think that piano teachers are all grateful for your research because we get to better understand our students and ourselves um thanks to your research that's Great. So I have one last question before we do a couple of rapid fire questions. Unless, is there anything that you wanted to touch on that we didn't get to?
1: Oh, there's so much. I could just go
0: on and (laughs) on. I mean, we could talk for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: I will say, if you want to know more about my current research, uh, it's just about finished. I defend uh, here in about three weeks. And the Full dissertation document will probably again, be on my website, but also housed with Library and Archives Canada. The warning is that it now sits at 300 pages, but there's pictures. You can just go through and look at the pictures, Uh, but that's the scope of what I've been thinking and talking about is uh, there's quite a depth to it. I think it's, I'm I'm really proud of how it's turned out. So if you wanna read more about that, that will be done and available publicly in the next few weeks.
0: Wonderful. And I will link to, um, your articles and your website. And if your dissertation is up by the time this, um, podcast launches, I will also link to that in the show notes. So, um, I mean, I think you might have just answered my last question, which is what are you working on right now? And what's getting you excited? It doesn't have to be your dissertation research, (laughs)
1: That is the big thing is yeah. this uh, dissertation defense that's coming up, but uh, oh, I have, I always have lots of projects happening right now um, on my Instagram, uh, if you want to follow me there, it's just at garrulous music. Um, I'm in a recording project with some other teachers. We're recording one piece from every every level of the new Royal Conservatory books and posting them on our Instagram. So I've been having fun recording some of that new repertoire. Um, I'm hoping to return to some lessons with my own mentor teacher. There's just so much good music left to play. So I've Mm -hmm. been um, scouring syllabi, dreaming up what I'm going to be learning next for myself. Uh, I'm, I'm a recent, member of the National Adjudicators Association so I'm excited about that to do some more adjudicating in my future and uh, in my own private studio I'm excited that I actually only have one new student next year everybody else is returning so that makes it a really easy transition back to teaching I know everybody I know where they're at and here we go let's let's hit it
0: that's so great that's exciting um wonderful thanks so much for sharing Well, it's been such a pleasure getting to chat with you. We're going to wrap up our chat with a few rapid fire questions. There are no wrong answers. Just go with your gut. And if you want to pass on one, just let me know. So could you point to a moment when you knew you wanted to be a musician?
1: Not particularly, to be honest, because it's always (laughs) just been such a huge part of my life. Uh, I think I was just destined to do this. I mentioned the musical Cats before we used to drive around in our 1992 Chevy Lumina minivan, listening to Vivaldi's Four Seasons and the tape from Riverdance. <laughs> this is my mom's grand piano that you can see behind me, and as I mentioned, I tried to escape it, but it sucked me back in. So, no, this is just meant—it's meant to be
0: the musical vortex. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite piece or song to perform or play?
1: Uh, That that past recital I just mentioned in June, I played Amy Beach's Fireflies and just love it. Love it.
0: It's beautiful. It's so fun. I love that one too. Have you ever been given bad career advice?
1: Oh, I think this is a fabulous question. People need to ask this question more often. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, of course I have plenty. But one that stands out to me is that number of years ago, somebody told me that I would be a better teacher once I became a parent. What? Because I would relate to kids better or something. And that has been thoroughly untrue now that I am a parent. Um, (laughs) I was a very good teacher before I became a parent. Still am a pretty good teacher, I think. And in fact, I think now that I am a parent, I'm actually a little bit more critical of other parents who are well-meaning, but distant. So being a parent does not make you a better teacher.
0: What is the best musical or career advice you could pass on to up and coming musicians?
1: Well, musicians really need to broaden their definition of musician Yes as I've been previously mentioning is that it doesn't just mean somebody on stage playing 40 minute concertos. Mm-hmm. We need to think about this more carefully. We have a very narrow conceptualization of what it means to be a musician. And then my follow-up question to that is, what does that mean for the thousands of hours that students are gonna spend at their instrument? What does that mean for them along the way if they have invested that much time and energy and still don't live up to the definition of being a musician? That crushes their little spirits. So refer to your students as musicians. That is my best musical and career advice for anyone out there.
0: I love it. Absolutely. And what are you listening to right now? Other than the, the trumpet concerto.
1: <laughs> Lots of trumpet concerto. <laughs> what am I listening to right now? Uh, I just discovered that the Staves have a new album out. Uh, they're a British group of three sisters that I quite enjoy.
0: That's wonderful. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Karen, for coming on loud and clear. Can you let our audience know where they can find you and know about the exciting things that you're doing?
1: Yeah. So I had mentioned my website previously, garrulousmusic.com. G-E-R-E-L-U-S-M-U-S-I-C.com. Uh, same thing at garrulous music for Instagram. Those are the two best places to find me. So Perfect. I hope you will be in touch.
0: That sounds great. Well, thank you so much, Karen. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you so much. I, I just love talking about this. I love sharing my research uh, and good luck with your future interviews. I can't wait to hear them.
0: And there you have it. That is my interview with Karen Geralis. I hope you enjoyed it. I will have links to all the references if you go to oamusicstudios.ca slash podcast. Make sure you go and give Karen a follow and let her know how much you enjoyed the show. Thank you to the Saskatoon Symphony Orchestra for sponsoring this podcast. Make sure you head over to saskatoonsymphony.org to purchase tickets for upcoming shows. And if you don't live in the Saskatoon area, you can watch these shows via Concert Stream by following the link at the top of the website. And if you want to show some love for the podcast, you can leave a five star rating or review to help other people find it. I'm your host, Olivia Adams, and you can find me at OA Music Studios on socials. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.